Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, we read, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye, hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. One of my all-time favorite television commercials was done by AmeriQuest for the Super Bowl. A man gets home from work before his wife. He plans to treat her to a delicious meal. He's been to the grocery, obviously, and he has all the ingredients for a delicious spaghetti. He even has some cut flowers for the table. But as the sauce simmers on the stove, the couple's fluffy white kitty jumps up on the countertop. And knocks off the pot of sauce. The cat falls in the red spaghetti sauce, which colors his, his fur a blood-like red. Well, the husband has been chopping lettuce. And so as he reaches down to clean up the spill, he's got a butcher knife in one hand and his blood-red kitty in the other hand. Just at that moment, the wife opens the door and sees him. Actually, why don't I just show you the clip? <laughs> Here's a loving, caring, thoughtful husband, the envy of most wives. He's cooking his honey dinner. He should be rewarded for his love and his initiative. Instead, his wife thinks she's married to a cat killer. And of course, the caption sums up the commercial's message, don't judge too quickly. In dealing with people, we all should be careful about jumping to the wrong conclusions. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. How easy it is to draw the wrong conclusions about other people. We all tend to categorize and generalize and assume and pigeonhole and stereotype and fault find and sin sniff. Oh, we think we know the whole story, but we don't. When we make judgments based on appearance, or when we assume we know another person's motive, we're making unfair and superficial judgments. Hey, I don't care if you've got perfect eyesight, 20-20 vision. No one can see into another person's heart. As Jesus said, judge not. And why should you judge not? Well, he tells us, that you be not judged. For when you make assumptions and ill-informed conclusions about other folks, don't you be surprised when they make similar assumptions about you. 
Here's a great poem. I dreamt death came the other night, and heaven's gate swung open wide. An angel came to meet me and ushered me inside. There to my astonishment stood folks I'd known on earth, some I'd judged and labeled unfit of little worth. Angry words rose to my lips, but never were set free. For every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. <laughs> Judge not that you be not judged. Now having clarified what verse 1 means, we need to talk a little bit about what it doesn't mean. For I have no doubt that Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 is the most misquoted and distorted verse in all of the Bible. I mean, this verse is constantly being made to say what it was never meant to say. Talk to the couple who's shacking up together. Tell them they're living in sin. And they'll bark back at you. You think you're so good? Don't tell me what's right and wrong. The Bible says, judge not that you be not judged. Or confront a teenager who's been experimenting with drugs. And he or she will fire back. Hey, I learned in Sunday school, judge not that you be not judged. Or insist on some integrity on the job and some co-worker will whine. You're so judgmental. Don't you know the Bible says, judge not that you be not judged? I mean, a person may be completely unfamiliar with the rest of the Bible, but you can bet they've learned one verse. They've even committed it to memory. When a Christian takes a stand against sin and insists on righteousness, the other person will usually pull out this verse, Matthew 7, verse 1, and shout back, Judge not that you be not judged. This is ammunition for the ignorant. You know, when Jesus spoke this verse, He wasn't suggesting we bury our heads in the sand. That we ignore sin in our lives or sin around us. Vagueness is no virtue. Jesus is certainly not muzzling the voice of morality. Hey, if I say that homosexuality is wrong, or that Mormonism is false and heretical, it's not judgment that I'm espousing. God has already judged these matters in the pages of Scripture. Morality and truth is not my opinion against your opinion. I mean, here's the issue. What does the Bible teach? As Christians, we're required to stand on God's Word. Remember the author of Judge Not Here also drove the greedy, crooked money changers out of the temple. He made a judgment that day. He uttered a scathing rebuke against the hypocritical Pharisees in Matthew 23. He called them blind guides and a brood of vipers. That's making a judgment. Earlier in chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, Beware of false prophets. And obviously, false prophets don't enter the church wearing a name tag that reads, Hi, I'm a wolf. Implied is the need for discernment. You've got to make a judgment. We should expose the cultist lies. We should identify doctrines that are false. In verse 20 of chapter 7, we're told, By their fruits you will know them. We all should be fruit inspectors. In fact, look at what Jesus tells us just five verses after he says, Judge not. Drop down to Matthew 7, verse 6. It says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Talk about judging. In the first century, dogs were never pets. 
They were considered wild beasts. They were savage and vicious. Dogs scavenged. They lived in the garbage dumps. I mean, try to pet a Palestinian dog and you would lose a finger. And you would never take a sacrifice offered to God and toss it out to these mongrels in order to rip it to pieces. And the swine, they were just as savage. Jews not only considered the pig ceremonially unclean, but they were dangerous. These hogs were ferocious. There were no little piglets in Jesus' day. It would be ludicrous to take a pearl necklace and hang it around the neck of a swine. And according to Jesus, there are members of the human race who, spiritually speaking, are dogs and hogs. These people have no taste for the truth. They feed on spiritual garbage, and you waste valuable time and effort trying to feed them with holy delicacies. It's better to wait on God to prepare their hearts to hear before you try to fill their heads with truth. There's a whole world out there that needs Jesus. Don't let Satan bog you down with a hard-hearted person and distract you from those who would welcome the truth if they heard it. Satan loves to have us slopping hogs when we could be feeding sheep. But here's the point. Verse 6 demands that we make judgments. Wise, biblical, spiritual judgments, but judgments nonetheless. At times, we have to judge. You see, when Jesus tells his disciples to judge not, the Greek word that's translated judge is the word krino. It means to judge with the intent to condemn. What Jesus is prohibiting here are judgments made to put someone down or to cut someone up. If we judge another person, it should never be for condemnation. You see, there are three reasons that we should judge a person. For identification, for our own preservation, for that person's restoration, but never ever for condemnation. Whenever we point out sin, it's to help and heal the sinner, not to condemn them and write them off. You remember in the upper room, Jesus noticed that his disciples had dirty feet. But he didn't talk about the dirt. He didn't even rebuke them for having dirty feet. Rather, he went about washing their feet. Jesus lifted them up. He didn't put them down. I think too many Christians today think they're the soul patrol. They consider it their job to cruise the church looking for violators of God's law. It's their ministry to write tickets and to issue warnings and to set the limits and to determine the spiritual haves and the have-nots. These people are quick to point out sin, but they offer no hope for deliverance. And they are a blight on the body. They do great damage. It's been said, you have a right to censure only if you have a heart to help. And that is so true. Don't criticize a person unless you're willing to familiarize yourself with their plight. And mobilize to help in their need. Judge not that you be not judged. As Christians, we are called to make biblical judgments, but not personal judgments. Where the Bible speaks, we can speak with authority. But again, it's the truth of Scripture, not my prejudices or my preferences or my tradition that's the measuring stick. Any judgment I make should be based on God's Word, not my whims. Reminds me of the man who was selected for jury duty. He had plans for the week. And he wanted to get dismissed as early in the process as possible. 
The first chance he got, he approached the judge. He told him that he should be disqualified from the case. He admitted that he was biased. In fact, he pointed to the man at the table and he said, Your Honor, I have no doubt that guy's guilty. He looks like a crook. He smells like a crook. He sounds like a crook. He committed the crime. Let him do the time. There's no way I could possibly give that fellow a fair trial. The judge looked at the juror and he told him, he said, Sir, shut up and go back and sit down in a jury box. The man said, But your honor. The judge answered him, he said, The man you just pointed to isn't the defendant. He's the district attorney. Hey, we need to be careful to see situations as they are, not as we want them to be. We draw conclusions that are convenient and self-serving rather than truthful. Hey, we all should have learned by now that looks can be deceiving. I mean, isn't that why you take a used car to the mechanic before you spend your hard-earned cash to buy it? I mean, a car can look good, all clean, all polished, but a pretty exterior doesn't tell you what's under the hood. On the other hand, my wife drives a 1998 Suburban that's now logged over 210,000 miles. The upholstery has a few tears, but the body's, and the body's dented because my youngest son backed into a tree in the driveway. But that Suburban gets her where she needs to go. Dependable is its middle name. My point is, is appearances can mislead. Years ago, before my kids came along, I had a beard. And I rode a motorcycle. Even had a leather jacket that went with it. In fact, for a while, that motorcycle was my primary mode of transportation. I rode it everywhere. I even went to the hospital to make hospital visits on the back of my motorcycle. I always parked in the designated parking for pastors. I think that made a few people mad. I had a clergy parking pass that I'd stick in the fairing on my motorcycle. And whenever I pulled up in the clergy parking folks would stare holes in me a pastor riding a motorcycle to the hospital that was unthinkable I'll never forget one night I was leaving to cab general and I pulled up to the toll booth and I handed the guy my clergy parking pass he didn't even see the pass he just kept waiting on me to to pay the fee the bearded guy on the motorcycle needed to pay the fee I kept shaking my pass in his face he probably thought that I had murdered a pastor and stolen the parking pass. Finally, he smirked at me and let me go on through. And I'll never forget laughing. I turned around and I told him, I said, Buddy, I know it's confusing. They just don't make pastors like they used to. But let me ask you, have you ever pigeonholed another person? Taken a look at them, sized them up, immediately categorized them without really getting to know them? We all have, haven't we? It's these kinds of prejudicial judgments that paralyze our fellowship, even our outreach, that hinder God's work among us. Judgments that are based on a person's hair, or their clothes, or their skin color, or their tattoos, or their age, or their accent, or their occupation. On the externals instead of the internals. When we make these judgments, we're violating Jesus's commandment have you, ever been, have you ever been guilty of making just blanket assumptions like all homeless people are lazy all politicians are dishonest all preachers are money hungry 
all single adults are hopeless. All teenagers are irresponsible. All parents are out of touch. All lawyers are crooks. All accountants are boring. All Georgia Tech fans are nerds. All umpires are blind. All New Yorkers are rude. All Episcopalians are liberal. All bosses are unsympathetic. All rich people are materialistic. All blondes are dense. All policemen hang out at Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, we make these kinds of assumptions. None of us like to be pigeonholed. Why do we do it to other people? And we all like to be given the benefit of the doubt. So let's treat others in the same way we desire to be treated. We need to take heed to the counsel Jesus offers in another place. In John 7 verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. As a student in South Africa, Mohandas Gandhi, he read the Gospels. And he was impressed with the teachings of Jesus. He felt that Christianity might be the solution to India's oppressive caste system. He considered converting to Christianity and becoming a Christian. That's when he went to a local church to seek a pastor's help. But when he entered that church that Sunday, he was refused a seat. He was told by the white usher on duty to leave and to worship God with his own people. Gandhi left not only the church that morning, but he left Christianity that day and he never returned. He later wrote, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. You see, superficial judgments turned him off forever. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been contrasting love and law, internal goodness of heart with external window dressing, righteousness born of the Spirit with self-righteousness produced by legalism. And you see, it's this self-righteous person that has a problem. You see, when he or she stacks themselves up against God's standards, they find themselves severely lacking. So, in order to soothe their conscience, they make a habit out of comparing themselves with other people. In other words, if they can make other people look bad, then they'll look good. A self-righteous person condemns other people to justify himself. The more he picks at others, the more fault he finds in others, the more secure he can feel about himself. This is what the Pharisee did to the tax collector in the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. Jesus said, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. You see, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches that real spirituality is inward, whereas the Pharisees had concocted an outward form of righteousness. When it came to deeds, the Pharisees were squeaky clean, but on the inside, their attitude stunk to high heaven. And since their righteousness was outward, they used performance-oriented activities as the measuring stick. As far as they were concerned, you were right with God only if you kept their rituals and observed their traditions. And you see, this is still the modus operandi of the self-righteous person. They develop their own litmus test for true spirituality, whether it's what you drink or what you eat 
or what you wear or the style of music you listen to or the translation of the Bible you use or the social cause you support. I mean, the potential list of stipulations is endless. The Pharisee isn't interested in the work of the Holy Spirit inside a person's heart. He only cares about whether they've conformed to his own personal set of standards. Here's the motto of the self-righteous person. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. Again, we're called on to make biblical judgments, but not personal judgments. Hey, if you see me flirting with immorality, then certainly call me on the carpet. If you hear me teach false doctrine, report me to the elders. But if you don't like my jokes or how I do the announcements or that I get a little obnoxious about my loyalty to the Bulldogs or that I wear blue jeans on Sunday morning, then get over it, please. Learn to overlook it. At least talk to me about it. But whatever you do, don't accuse me of carnality question my love for God you see no man can judge another man's spiritual condition because no man can look into another person's heart it's very difficult to judge another man's motive you can observe the fruit of a person's life you can note the wisdom of their actions but you have no right to question their motive only God knows their heart 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 tells us Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart and then each one's praise will come from God. Every heart will be revealed but only when the Lord returns. In the meantime, it's not for us to pry. When my daughter Natalie was in college to make some extra money, she started umpiring softball games. I never could get this in my mind. My sweet, bubbly pastor's daughter was calling balls and strikes and throwing obnoxious coaches out of the ballpark. One day, Natalie and I were talking about it, and she told me the only real problem she had was with one coach who happened to be a local pastor. Imagine a pastor getting upset with the umpire. And yet, sadly, a lot of us are umpires at heart. When someone else is pitching, we like to call balls and strikes. We're quick to criticize. We're quick to question the other guy, what he or she should or shouldn't be doing. You know, whenever I watch football, seldom do I criticize the quarterback by watching a football game. My daughter-in-law, she's harsh. She's all over the quarterback. My sons, they, they, they criticize the quarterback without even any second thought. But I rarely criticize the quarterback. And do you know why? Because I was once a quarterback. And I know firsthand that your perspective changes when you got 300-pound man-eating beasts breathing down your neck and trying to smash your face into the turf. I mean, it just blows my mind. The average fan doesn't know the play, has never felt the heat, has never even strapped on a helmet, yet they'll scream at the quarterback when he throws an errant pass. Be careful with your criticism. 
How can you criticize your boss when you've never sat in his seat? Or your pastor when you've never been one? Or a single mom if you happen to be married? Or a person holding down two jobs when you only have to work one? Or a new believer struggling with alcohol if you've never been an alcoholic? How can you criticize these people? When I judge another person, so much is hidden from my view. And because I lack specific and crucial details, I'm not in a position to make a judgment. Speaking of umpires, what really irritates me most is when an arrogant umpire is out of position but still makes the call without asking help from his fellow umps. How can an umpire see what's going on at third base if he's clear across the diamond at first base? And the same is true for us. It's arrogant for you or me to assume that we see well enough to judge a person when we're not in a position to see all of the facts. I heard of a young lawyer whose boss gave out turkeys for Thanksgiving. It was just a company perk. Since this lawyer was single, he didn't have much need for a turkey. One year, the lawyer's co-workers decided to play a joke on this young lawyer. They replaced his turkey with a phony, one made out of paper mache. They weighted it down so it would feel real. Well, on the way home that day, the lawyer met a man on the bus who had fallen on hard times. Life had gotten so difficult for this fellow that he was down to his last $2.50. The young lawyer, he felt sorry for the fellow. And so he decided to give him his turkey. But, but he thought that the man would be insulted if he gave him just charity. And so he sold him the turkey for $2.50. The poor man was so excited, he left bounding down the street with that turkey. He was going to feed his family for Thanksgiving. Well, on Monday, the lawyer's co-workers, they wanted to know how he liked his turkey. They were all laughing and smirking. When he told them what he'd done, they panicked. They were so upset. To their credit, they searched the bus line for weeks, but they never found the man who gave his last $2.50 for a paper turkey. And you know what? That poor victim probably died thinking that that young lawyer had swindled him out of his last $2.50. For the rest of his life, that poor fellow felt that he had every right to be mad and bitter toward all lawyers. But his assumption was wrong, wasn't it? There were hidden details. Listen to this point. Pray, don't find fault with a man who limps or stumbles along the road unless you've worn the shoes he wears or struggled beneath his load. There may be tacks in his shoes that hurt, though hidden away from view. Or the burden he bears placed on your back might cause you to stumble too. Don't sneer at the man who is down today unless you have felt the blow that caused his fall or felt the shame that only the fallen know. You may be strong, but still the blows that were his if dealt to you in the self-same way at the self-same time might cause you to stagger too. Don't be too harsh with a man who sins or pelt him with words or stones unless you are sure, yes, doubly sure that you have no sins of your own. For you know, perhaps, if the tempter's voice should whisper as soft to you as it did to him who went astray, it would cause you to falter too. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the greatest obstacle facing the church today 
is our own negativity. You know our problem? It's pettiness. Church people can get so picky. We tend to see the cup half empty rather than half full. The church today needs more cheerleaders and fewer critics. Reminds me when the famous St. Louis Cardinal slugger Stan Musial broke into the big leagues. He did so with a bang. In his first at bat in the big leagues, he singled. In his second at bat, he tripled. In his next two at bats, he hit home runs. After the game, the opposing pitcher, Bobo Newsom, was asked what he thought of this new St. Louis phenom. Newsom said, ah, Musial, he ain't perfect. He can't even hit doubles. Some people like Bobo, they become so blind. They're so negative by nature. They're blind to the good in other people. And Jesus warns them, expect the same criticism that you dish out. He says to us in verse 2, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Be careful when you judge another person. Hey, if you ever think that at some point in your future you might need some grace and forgiveness, it would be wise for you to extend some grace today. i got to admit, I was a lot harder on pastors before I became one. But now that I know what a pastor has to endure, I treat other pastors with a lot more mercy, with the same mercy I hope they'll show me one day. In the book of Judges, there was a Canaanite king named Adonai Bezek. This king tortured other kings that he conquered by cutting off their thumbs and their big toes. I suppose he wanted to be sure they towed the line. That was a joke, but nobody laughed. But when the men of Judah conquered this king, they did to the king what he had done to others. Later the king made this comment, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather their food under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. God judged Adonai Bezak with the same measure that he had used to judge others. Be careful when you go cutting down people and chopping up people. God might see to it that you get treated exactly the way you've treated others. Notice verse 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck of your brother's eye. Jesus employs a little humor here in his sermon. A particle gets into our eye. We need to have the ophthalmologist remove it. That's when all of a sudden the doors swing open and out walks this guy with a two-by-four stud hanging out of his eye socket. His plank is bigger than your particle. And yet the guy with a two-by-four is removing your toothpick. It's funny, really. It doesn't make sense. It's been said, faults are like headlights. The other guy's headlights always seem more glaring than your own. It's easier for me to see your sin than it is to see my sin. Once there was a college student who rubbed Limburger cheese on his sleeping roommate's mustache. 
when the kid woke up, he couldn't believe the horrible smell. He told his friend, he said, this room stinks. He walked down the hall, he says, this hall stinks. He went outside, he said, the whole world stinks. This ignorant fellow blamed the whole world for the odor that was actually emanating from his own upper lip. You, you remember when Nathan the prophet told King David the story of the large sheep herder who had cruelly taken his neighbor's only little lamb to feed his guest? I mean, he could have slaughtered a lamb from his own herd, but instead he took one from his poor neighbor, the only lamb that the guy had. David was steamed when he heard this. He even screamed, kill the man, off with his head. That's when Nathan pointed his long, bony finger in the king's face and he uttered, you are the man. It's easier to see sins in other people than to see those same sins in ourselves. David was infuriated by the man in the story without seeing that he was guilty of the very same crime. The king was the sheep herder who had robbed Uriah of his beautiful wife Bathsheba. Oh, we see sin in someone else so clearly while we're blind when it's in our own life. Once there was a lady who had friends over to her house for lunch and through the window she pointed to her neighbor's dirty house in a snobby tone, she said, my neighbor's so sloppy. Just look at those dirty streaks on his siding, on the side of his house. That's when one of his, her friends replied, said, pardon me, but those streaks aren't on your neighbor's siding, they're on your window. Why do we want to hunt down sins in other people while we're harboring those same sins in our hearts? You see, eye surgery is a delicate, precise procedure. It takes a skilled surgeon with unclouded vision to successfully remove a speck from a person's eye. And the same is true spiritually. You can't take out a speck from someone else's eye when you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your own eye. Not everyone is skilled in speck removal. And thus Paul tells the Galatians, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Don't go around looking for specks in other people. Spend your time dealing with the planks in your own life. When it comes to a brother or sister, give them the benefit of the doubt. Assume the best. Don't criticize. And if out of your love for your brother, it becomes obvious that he or she does need your help, then let those who are spiritual and who are aware of their own weaknesses Approach that brother and gently correct him. Not with guns blazing, but in a spirit of humility and gentleness. Let me close this morning by taking us to Jerusalem. It's early one morning. The sun is barely over the horizon. When men ram down a door and they snatch a woman right out of the bed. Without even a chance for her to dress herself, she's being pushed through the streets. An angry mob enters the temple courtyard where Jesus is standing. A delegation of religious men throw this woman down at Jesus' feet. With rocks in their hands, they start to growl, All right, teacher, we caught her in adultery in the very act. The law says we need to put her in a pit and throw rocks at her until she's dead. What do you say? 
But Jesus, he ignored their malicious question. Rather, the master stooped and he began to doodle in the dirt. What he wrote, we don't know. This mob meant business. They weren't going to be slighted. Her accusers were demanding an answer. And yet slowly and deliberately, Jesus raised his head and he said to these men, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then Jesus stooped down again and once more began to write in the dirt. Scripture says that one by one, these men dropped their rocks and their accusations and they began to walk away. And what had been a crowded courtyard a few minutes earlier now held just two people. Jesus and this wayward woman. Ironically, Jesus was the only person in the circle that day qualified to cast a stone. For he was the only one who had never sinned. And yet Jesus chose to forgive this woman rather than condemn her. Our Lord told the adulteress, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now often we retreat to this story when we deserve the rocks. When we're the one that's been caught in sin. And it's a good story to retreat to. It reassures us that Jesus is willing to forgive us and extend his mercy and grace to the likes of us. Oh, but we also need to remember this story and Jesus' example when the rocks are in our own hands. Do the people not stacking up to your standards have a reason to squirm when they run into you? As one person observed, I marvel at the aim of some sinners when given a stone. Judge not that you be not judged. Don't accuse who you won't assist. Don't rebuke who you won't repair. Don't censure who you won't comfort. As the body of Christ, our primary function is not to be each other's critic, but to be each other's confidant. To support and to encourage one another. I want to leave you this morning with the following words ringing in your ears. Colossians 3 verses 12 and 13. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And to that I say, Amen. Let's you and I put on love. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Help us, Lord, to judge not, lest we be judged. Lord, I pray that we would take heed to your word today and that we would live our lives, Lord, in the same grace that we've been shown. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the fellowship of believers. We pray you'll continue to bless us in this coming week, Lord. Do good things in our hearts. We love you and we praise you. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.